Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Will. How are you? We're sitting in the same room. <laughs> You're still in Costa Rica, Ashley. I'm still in Costa Rica, and it's the best day ever. It's 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 like you've been here for months. How I, long have you been here? At least 10 days. 10 days, or a month, or months. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really good, though. Well, why has it been good, Ashley? Well, I first brought down a team for my church, and it was so nice because it was just two families, and, well, three if you count Kylie. And it was we, nice. We can count Kylie. Yeah, let's count Kylie. So three yeah. families. Um, and there were all people that maybe hadn't been to Costa Rica before, but they knew me and they knew you really well. And so it was almost like having a family reunion with people we love here in Costa Rica, but they hadn't been here on site before. So we were able to show them around and introduce them to things that they've heard about for 10 years now. Um, and they were able to see it with their own eyes. But the special part about it was because we had such a small group. And like we've been talking about so much about these family trips, companionship, faithful friendships, um, is we were able to spend time as a family together. So we went to your farm. We spent some time at the river. Uh, we were able, I think my favorite moment of the week was when we took time out to pray with uh, the counselors here on site at Listening with Love, Escucha con Amor. Mm -hmm. I think I might have ruined that Spanish. But it's okay. We know, it. we know what you meant. <laughs> and it was just nice to be together and to share together. Um, Yolanda and I spent a ton of time together, which <laughs> always does my soul very good. And I think it does her soul good too. Yes, I know it does. Yeah, it was good. I'll tell you, we're getting ready to get into a really busy summer season, and it was so nice to have you all here and to just be able to kind of rest, but together, you know, and, and have that time to abide and to fellowship and to share things about our life here and this ministry here with everybody, but do it in a way that was really low pressure and um, we never felt rushed or stressed, and we I think we needed that. So that was that was wonderful, a wonderful gift that you all brought with you. The coolest, I think, moment for me was realizing that maybe three years ago, um, I was sitting in the kitchen of one of the families that was here. And Jessica Russo was proofreading a grant that I was writing so that we could hopefully start this counseling program. And she got to see the counseling program. She got to see the facility that's been built. She got to pray with Yolanda and with Priscilla. She got to see people coming and going for appointments. And it was just, it was so wonderful to see how much that meant to her, but also for me to sort of be reminded of the fact that even though we may be sort of the faces of this ministry sometimes, there are so many people that help in so many different ways and are part of all of this. The way that it grows, um, the, the decisions that we make, you know, part of being in the kind of relationship that we're in with your church and with other partner churches is that none of that stuff happens in a vacuum. Thank goodness. Um, but we are able to lean on people who who we love and trust and who we know love and trust us and also love this ministry and want the best for it. And so it was just a great little little moment of, of kind of making that sort of that light bulb came on and realized, oh, my gosh, I, I was writing this grant in your kitchen and here you are now seeing the fruit of that so uh, i love that we did spend a lot of time or we do spend a lot of time around tables and i think that that was one of the biggest reasons why we called this the broken banquet is because we do spend a lot of time with people we love sitting around the table where we all bring our own unique individual gifts 
but collectively become even better. Um, and that's part of that whole abiding, that communion that God brings us together, abiding in Christ, abiding with each other. And together, we help bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Mm. A little glimpse of heaven will. Yep. Or at least try to not get in the way of, of heaven coming here on earth. <laughs> that's my goal. <laughs> I just don't want to get in the way. Uh, well, somebody who also is doing her part to bring the kingdom of mm. heaven on earth is today's guest. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about today's guest. We've, we've done a little bit of buildup uh, because she is a very popular guest and her book comes out on Monday, March 27th, mm -hmm. which is when this is airing. So Monday, March 27th, her mm -hmm. book comes out. And uh, I'm very excited for Katie Davis Majors to be joining us here on the podcast today. Her new book is called Safe All Along. So everybody go out to Amazon or your local bookstore and pick that up. And you can read all about who Katie is and the things that she is learning around the world, but especially as she's working in Uganda. So Will, I can't wait for you to meet her. Yep. Let's get to it. Here's Katie. Hey, Will. Hey, Ashley. I'm very excited about today. Why are you so excited about today, Ashley? We, we have a guest on the podcast that I've never met, but I've been to her house. That's interesting. Can't wait to hear that story. <laughs> well, we have uh, friends in common, people that you know too, Will. Their names mm -hmm. are Jeremy and Tamara Boone. I've been to Jinja, Uganda at least 10 times. And I've gone to this person's house for a worship service on a Sunday without mm -hmm. the person actually being there. So today's the first day that she and I get to have a conversation. Do you have any idea who our guest might be today? I have no idea who our guest might be today based on the information that you've given me so far. Okay. Well, she's written two New York Times bestseller books. One mm -hmm. of them is called Kisses for Katie. Another is called Daring to Hope. Do you have any idea yet? Uh, her name's Katie. <laughs> You're right. Her name is Katie Davis Majors. And Katie, we're so excited to have you on the Broken Banquet podcast today. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. And Tamara and Jeremy are also two of my favorite people in the world and, and also their kids too. So that's super fun. I did not know that you had been to our house, but it doesn't surprise me that they were having <laughs> worship service there even without us. That's just kind of kind of how it rolls. There's all sorts of awesome things happening there probably today without me. So, so I love that. Well, what's so fun is that one of the gals that I have traveled with to Uganda, she was in my youth group. I was her youth pastor uh, in, when she was in high school. And she, of course, had read your books. And I don't, I can't imagine anyone being more upset than every single time we visited Jeremy and Tamara and she not being able to meet you. So Diana Grace, I hope you're listening today because Katie is on our podcast and she says hello to you. <laughs> hello. <laughs> well, Katie, why don't we jump right in? Let's hey. just jump right in. And how did missions start for you? I've just, I just always had kind of a draw to missions that was pretty unexplainable. I mean, my parents talked a lot about missions, but neither of them had really ever done any. And so um, I begged my mom to take me on a mission trip for my 18th birthday. So we went to Uganda for the first time over Christmas break of my senior year in high school. And I just loved every bit of it, loved the people, most especially um, got connected with a pastor there who was trying to start up a little kindergarten program at the orphanage that he and his wife run. And so he asked me, hey, would you want to come back and live with my wife and I for a year and just kind of help us out and get this thing off the ground? And I, I mean, I just kind of said like, sure. I love it here. I love kids. I'll come. And so um, I took a gap year my senior year in high school that turned out to be, you know, lifelong. I'm still on the gap year um, <laughs> and moved to Uganda to live with him. And that's kind of how it all started for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. What did it look like the first, that first year, those first few months, what did it look like for you? The new sites, the new smells, the new place, the new people, what did that look like for you those first few months? 
Um, yeah, it was, it was so many things, so many words come to mind, right? Like it was thrilling and it was exciting. It felt like this brand new adventure, all the different, you know, sights and smells and sounds and new foods and a new language to learn and just new friendships to be made. It also felt super lonely. Um, there are a lot of Americans in Jinjin now, but the orphanage I was working out was outside quite a bit, and there weren't any other Americans there. And the pastor and his wife were so generous and so kind to let me live in their home. And they spoke some English, but a lot of the people kind of in the community didn't speak great English. And I was just learning the language too. And so communication was really hard. And so it it was both. It was both like, you know, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows kind of all combined into one, just really learning like, oh, I don't know how to do any of the things that you guys do in your daily life and having to be like super reliant on the people that, you know, I naively thought I was coming to help. Um, and in fact, they were like helping me survive. <laughs> Um, so yeah, those first several months are like a huge, huge learning curve. Well, I'm curious if, if we could back up a little bit, I'd like to hear you said you, you were interested in missions. You talked about missions and, and you said you begged your mother to let you go on a mission trip. Was that just sort of within your family context that that spark sort of happened or were you, did you grow up in a local church that talked about missions and did missions? Like what? What was the framework for those conversations even starting to happen before you had this first opportunity to go and and to serve abroad? Yeah, you know, I I feel like it's something that God just kind of put in my heart because there wasn't a lot of context around me for that. I mean, like my own kids now, we try to have these conversations and we talk about missions a lot, especially with my little guys now that we're here in the States for a time. But um, I think my parents just, I grew up in a super affluent, pretty kind of one-dimensional community. And my parents mm -hmm. just did a really good job of always kind of letting us know this is not all there is. There are a lot of people who live really, really differently. And my mom was always involved in all kinds of different volunteer things. And so we were always serving in our own community in some capacity. And I really enjoyed that. And I think I just, both my parents love to travel and have this great appreciation of like culture and new experiences. And so I think they instilled that in me. And so I think it just seemed natural that like the international travel piece and the service piece kind of overlap and go together. But yeah, even from a young age, I really wanted a large family and I wanted to adopt children. And those were not things that I was kind of like seeing in the community around me. So I feel like it's just cool how God kind of puts desires in us. I can completely relate to that. And how did you get connected to this this pastor? Was it just by being there on that first trip that you got to know this family that then extended the invitation to you? Or was there already some sort of a relationship there beforehand? Yeah. Um, so we had actually, my mom and I had planned to try to go on a mission trip with our church. And then that mission trip ended up not happening because not enough people signed up. It was over like Christmas time. And I said, mom, I still want to go somewhere. And so we got on Google and we looked up all these different organizations in all different parts of the world, not just in Uganda, and found an orphanage whose volunteer coordinator was on it and emailed us back very quickly with lots of information and made us feel really safe to travel over there and get involved. And so we went to that first orphanage in Jinja and the director introduced me to this other pastor who had a different orphanage that was farther out and more rural. And I just felt really drawn to his place and what he was doing because the place that we visited in Jinja was very well staffed and the kids were very well taken care of. And like, it was fun to be a volunteer there, but they were already getting what they needed. Whereas this other pastor that I connected with, they had a lot less resources and it just felt a little bit more like, oh, I think maybe I could be helpful here. And so when he extended the invitation to come back, I was super excited. Had no idea how humbling it would be to like live in someone else's home and in their space and have to learn kind of all the rules of culture from them. But they were they were very gracious to me as I learned. Are there any stories or, or just 
silly things like that 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 happened that you could share? Oh my goodness. Sure. I mean, plenty, plenty, plenty of embarrassing ones, right? <laughs> um, just, you know, little things like you never wear your shoes in the house because mm-hmm. it's yes. so, it's so dusty and so dirty and it's such hard work to mop the floors. And like you, that would be, it would be so disrespectful to wear your shoes into mm-hmm. someone's house on their mopped floors. So I know that I wore my shoes in the house sometimes and they would have to kind of gently rep- rep- reprimand me. It's also considered pretty impolite to not eat the food that you're given. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you can be given like this heaping plate of food that you don't recognize or know what it is. And like the kind thing to do is just eat it anyway. And I know that that took me some time. There were also like funny little things like learning how to cook. I had never made any kind of beans that didn't come from a can. Mm -hmm. Ever. <laughs> and beans are very much a staple food. And so I volunteered to make dinner for the family one night because they had been feeding me and doing my laundry and doing everything for me. And I was like, I'll make, you know, I can make rice and beans. I'll make dinner tomorrow. And didn't realize that like, no, you have to soak the beans for hours and then boil the beans <laughs> for hours for them to get soft so that you can cook them. And so went to the market and was only able to find, you know, like hard, dry beans, not beans in a can and didn't know how to cook them and had to then, you know, ask them to help me. So, yeah, lots of funny things. I was always like trying to be affectionate with the dogs and typically speaking in Uganda, like the dogs are not like pets mm-hmm. for fun. They're like, you know, they're guard dogs. So Yeah, they have a job to yes, do. Yes, they're working. <laughs> so just lots of funny things like that. But did you perfect G-nut sauce? No. You know, I don't love G-nut sauce. And and then what happened for me really was then a couple years in, I started getting my girls. um, So I I fostered and then adopted several children. And so then they like loved to cook and would sometimes teach me how to cook it. But honestly, theirs was always better than mine. So you kind of lose the motivation to learn. Um, I can make really good rice and beans now, though. Okay. Okay. You know, Ashley, this this reminds me that we've talked several times uh, with other people about preparation, right? And Mm -hmm. and being prepared some really, really well and others less so before going out into the mission field. And I think it's interesting to think about, I'm certainly, I'm not going to be an advocate for people not being prepared, but to some degree, having the kind of experience that you had, Katie, where you're just in it, you're in a family and they are teaching you as a family on the ground, this is how it is here. Maybe it's just a matter of finding sort of a balance, right, of, of what ways can you be prepared from afar before going into a mission setting, but then also not letting that make you think, mm-hmm. I get it, I'm ready, so that you don't listen to those voices of the people when you get there. Because I think I'm sure you learned some amazing lessons that you wouldn't have learned by, you know, spending a weekend with a group of people who were also going to go into the mission field. I mean, I think about experiences that I've had living with families in different countries and Mm -hmm. silly mistakes that I've made or words that I've mistranslated that have led to, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody dying laughing and I have no idea what's going on or. Or make sure you don't go on a date with the pastor's brother. (laughs) I have I have not m- made that um, misstep uh, so far. Um, okay. You know, I've never been bathed in Nutella either. So um, there's lots of lessons I've learned from okay. you, Ashley. Right. <laughs> okay. No, but I do think it's important to recognize that you know preparation is important, but there's a lot to be said to being open to being shaped and molded by the people who have invited you into the community themselves and making sure. And maybe this gets back to the other thing we've talked about so much, which is time, having time mm. to, and so, so maybe that's a, uh, you know, another question, Katie, did you feel when you got there, did you feel like you had time to learn these lessons sort of at your own pace or did you hit the ground running and feel like day two, you needed to be working and be effective and making a difference and all of that kind of stuff? What was that part of your experience like? That was definitely a wrestle. I think I had the feeling and the thought of like, you're here to help and you need to jump right in and be effective and be helpful. 
and you just couldn't, right? Like you just didn't know enough. I didn't know enough to be helpful. And so in looking back, and I always, I mean, people ask me a lot, like, what would you say to someone who wants to do missions? And I always say like, learn as much as you can beforehand, but really I would commit six months to a year to just be there and Mm -hmm. learn, learn the Mm -hmm. language, learn the culture. You know, if you can learn a skill here that would be beneficial before before you go to the mission field, that's great. But even still, I think you're right. You know, we we bring over some American staff, not very many anymore, but a few at Amazima. And we do like a weekend long training and it's fun and we get to know each other. But like, I tell my staff, like, there's nothing in this booklet that's going to prepare you (laughs) for real life. Like, go with a learning posture, have conversations, ask people, how do you do this? What do you need? What do you like? How can I help you? Right? Because I think I was very quick to assume that I knew some of those things. And sometimes it worked out okay, but sometimes sometimes I was really, really wrong. And thankfully, the people around me were very gracious. And so if I fell on my face a few times, like there was still the opportunity to keep trying. Um, but yeah, I think I would have done well to spend many months not trying to be effective or helpful in any way and just really know people and learn from them. When you said the thing about language, I remembered there's this there's this phrase you can say in Luganda and the phrase for you look beautiful and you are biting me really, really similar. It's just like one, there's like a n sound or like a n sound and it's one sound different. And um, for probably a solid like six months, I told kids in my class every day, like, you are biting me, trying to tell them like, you look really beautiful today. And they would always laugh. And I would always think like, oh, they think it's funny that I'm trying to speak their language. And then only, you know, only like months in did someone finally tell me like, why do you, why do you always say that? Like, why do you always say that I'm biting you? I'm not biting you. And I was like, what? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you look great today. And they were like, no, that's not what you're saying. Anyway, I guess we all do it. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. (laughs) I was going to say something that I kept saying in Spanish down with Daniel, uh, Will, but but that probably is not appropriate for this podcast, so I won't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Read the room, Ashley. Read the room. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Well, Katie, for all of those who have not read your book or your blog, you are a prolific writer, such a wonderfully creative writer that, that illustration by reading your writing I can imagine that I'm there and and so it's a beautiful thing to read but for those who have not read your writing how did you get from being there for the first couple of months and working in a school to Amazima and to where you are now man the Lord is so gracious and as I think back on it guys I think I I probably made every mistake that it is possible to make. But man, it, I, I mean, I just, you know, you feel like Paul a little like, okay, if God can use me, he can use anyone. Um, I started to really befriend the kids at the orphanage where I was living. There are about 120 kids and about eight staff. It was super understaffed. Mm-hmm. And the staff were wonderful and doing their best, but they didn't have what they needed. And um, as I as I started to get to know these kids, kind of two things were happening simultaneously. One, the kids were opening up to me more about their stories and they would often talk about their parents, their mom or their dad or their grandma who lived like nearby and they would sometimes go visit them on the weekends. That was weird to me because we don't know what we don't know, right? And what I thought I knew was that if you lived at an orphanage, your parents had died or you didn't have parents or your parents didn't want to want you. And so in meeting kids and knowing they had parents who loved them, who wanted to visit them right around the corner, I was asking the question, like, why don't you live with them? And it was because, you know, I think the statistic last time I checked, which has been many years, was that in East Africa, about 80% of kids in institutions have at least one living parent. And so kids are not living in orphanages because 
they are unloved or unwanted or because they don't have parents, but because of poverty, because their parents cannot afford to provide them with basic needs, three meals a day, medical care when you're sick, schooling. And so um, that really, really bugged me. And then at the same time, all the kids who lived at the orphanage were able to come to the little school that they were trying to build up that I was kind of helping out with the kindergarten. But a lot of the kids, I would walk the kids from school home sometimes or walk through the community in the afternoon and see a ton of kids who weren't in school because kids who lived at home with their parents, it it was very, very hard for them to afford schooling, especially because a lot of the families had multiple children in the family. And so maybe you would send your oldest child to school, but then nobody else would get to go. And so I just kind of started asking questions as I made friends in the community. You know, what do you need? How can I help? Um, When people would talk about, I think I'm going to send my kids to live at that orphanage where you live, I would say, well, well, why? Is it because you can't afford school? Okay. Can I pay for school? Is it because you can't afford to feed them? Okay. Can I provide you with some food? And so, you know, as I I would hear from people what they needed to kind of keep their families intact and keep their children at home and still get them an education, I would call my parents and be like, did you know that for like $100, we can send this child to school for the whole term? Did you know that you can buy food for only this much money? Um And they would get excited and send me some money or talk with um, people that they knew from work or in the community. And so I was keeping this blog to kind of let people know what I was up to. And people would reach out to me that way and say, can we send you some money to provide a family with food? And so I kind of just really organically started collecting money, money from my community here in the States and you know, kind of funneling that money to these different needs that were popping up in my new community in Uganda. And within the first year, I was sending about 40 kids from the community to school. Um, And so that's kind of, so I decided to kind of make that its own nonprofit. At first, really not even because I thought it was going to grow and I was going to do much with it, but just for the sake of like financial integrity and people having a good way to give, established a nonprofit. And I named it Amazima because it was really, really important to me that these families that I was starting to be in relationship with would know the truth of Jesus. And that verse just kept coming to my mind that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free in John 8. And so um, the Luganda word for truth is Amazima. And that's the name of my organization. And really, it just grew and grew and grew and more people kept sending the nonprofit money. I mean, we kind of, it was kind of backwards. Like the more people sent in money, the more I would say to different community members, like, okay, do we know other families we can bless? Do we know other kids who need to go to school? Do we know other families that may be in a medical crisis that need health care? And so Amazima just kind of grew in that way. And the more kids and families that that we had, like the more I realized, okay, I need people to kind of help me keep up with this. And so I started hiring some of my friends from the community to be my staff. And it's grown to the point where today we have a staff of over 300. We've built our own schools now. So we have a lower school campus and an upper school campus, and each campus has about 600 kids at it. We have a community development program, which started really When I first started Amazima, I was having the kids come to my house for Bible study every Friday or Saturday, and we were having some worship, and I was checking in on them. And as we grew, I realized, like, okay, well, I can only have relationship with so many people, and I definitely want all the kids in our program to have someone that they're in relationship with. And so I hired some social workers who we call mentors, and they're kind of the touch point for each of the families in our program and and the person who's really walking alongside them day to day. And so now we have a whole giant team of mentors that's out in the community helping these families with all different kinds of things. But it's been really, really awesome and really just humbling to watch God grow it into what it is today. Watching from afar, it looked like everything took off super quickly. And what I remember from my working in Haiti at 2010 when the earthquake happened Mm. is we were flooded with money 
and with people wanting things done quickly and wanting to see results. Did you ever feel that way at the beginning when things were taking off maybe so quickly and people were wanting to help? Did you feel the need to rush through things or, and and I think of that in like a partnership aspect Mm -hmm. of you had these people in your hometown who were so excited about helping and wanting to be a part of what you were doing. Did you feel that pressure? Do you wish that you had done anything differently? How would you counsel others to, as if something is taking off super quickly to, to, to move forward? That is a great question. And, you know, I don't think early on I felt that pressure quite so much, but I even feel it now. And I think that is always a pressure for people in missions and people in the nonprofit space is that you want to honor people who have supported you and you want to honor people who have given you money. But things that are done wisely take time. And I I don't mean this in a prideful way at all because it was not of me. It was totally of the Lord. But I feel like the Lord really protected me from some of that. And I think what Amazima has historically done well, and we've done a lot of things not well, so don't hear me say it's perfect, Mm -hmm. but we really try in everything we do to value relationship. And so if Mm -hmm. money is pushing us to grow faster, then we can have organic, real, authentic relationship. We cannot do that thing. And so there's always the pressure of like, well, if you raise the money, expand, 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 do, 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 results, 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 results. But I believe, I mean, I lived in Uganda for 15 years. I've been back in the States now for just over a year. We'd love to get back to Uganda um, at the right time. But I've never seen a life changed in absence of a real authentic relationship. And I've mm. I've seen lots of lives changed and I've seen lots of money given and I've seen lots of relationships established. And it's not that money doesn't help change a life or develop a program or build a building or whatever, but the building and the program is not what changes someone's life. What changes someone's life is when they have someone on their team and they have someone cheering them on, and they have someone speaking the truth of Jesus over them when they are struggling and when they are rejoicing. And so we really, really, really try to remind ourselves of that so often and remind our staff of that so often. Everything you do comes back down to a relationship that's built on trust. Yeah, when we're tempted to grow too fast, we lose that. And if there's ever a time when there is a student or a family in our program that we don't know, maybe I don't know them well, but like somebody on staff should know them well. And I feel like if we would get to the point organizationally where that wasn't true because we were building our programs so fast, that would be really not okay with me. But I definitely understand for people who go to the mission field or work for a nonprofit, there's there's always that tension because at the same time, I really want to honor people in my home community who are partnering with us and who are sending money. And I want to be able to show them like this, this is important. But I, again, I think to make any kind of lasting change, relationship has to be at the foundation and the programs and the buildings and the whatever things that the money buys have to come after. Katie, you're definitely speaking our language. We love talking about relationships and companionship and friendship and that sort of how important that is in the whole sort of missions dynamic. I'm really interested to know with with the the size of this organization and the number of people that you're working with on the ground, the number of of mentors and staff that you have, and and I'm sure a large number of 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 contributors that you have in the U.S. What are some of the strategies that you use so that the people contributing from afar do feel like they are connected and are able to build relationships? You know, I've asked this question of, of other missionaries. How do you want the average church member of one of your supporting churches who you know writes a check and puts it in the 
the offering plate, knowing that it's going to go to missions, how do you visualize them feeling connected to the community where you're serving? Are there some things that that you could share with us that uh, some some strategies that you guys use so that you're sort of bridging that? Uh, we almost called this instead of the broken banquet. It was going to be called um, minding the missions gap because there is mm. you know, sort of this yeah. gap between us. And so it's important to us. It's important to, to, to me and to our organization. I know it's important to Ashley that the people who are contributing so generously to the work that we do feel connected to the people that their contributions are going to, you know, in the long term yeah. benefit. So there was a question in there. Yeah, somewhere. yeah, I hear you. That is that <laughs> is a great question. And I am really blessed to honestly work with a large team of people who probably, if a different one of them were on this call, could answer the question better, um, <laughs> who really work with me and brainstorm and think about how we do that well. Because that's another that's another hard thing, right? We talked about the money, growth, relationship kind of tension. Mm-hmm. There's another tension here of how do you help people feel connected who are contributing and let them know that their contribution is so important and protect and value and steward well the stories of people you love and want to protect? And how do you do that in a way that is not in any way exploitive, is not in mm-hmm. any way um, mm-hmm. kind of sharing too much of their story. Yeah. And so that is a tension that we wrestle with at Amazima and that we, um, I can't say that we've perfected it yet. We ask for a lot of permission to, um, you know, can I share part of your story? Would you be okay to be in this video? What part of your story would you like to share? Um, what would you like to say? to somebody who is so generously giving money. I think, again, just like not assuming that I know the best way to tell the story and actually asking someone who's being helped or served, how would you tell your story? And then trying to get that information. Like I said, we have a great team who does videos and emails and different things to try to keep people who give connected with the people who receive. But again, it's it's definitely... It's definitely a balancing act to make people feel connected, but also to not cause, we don't ever want the people who are part of our programs in Uganda to feel like they're just the recipients. The face on the poster. The face on the poster. Yes, exactly. I would never, ever want any of the kids in our program to, you know, see their face on a website and think like, oh, really? They, I don't know. That's a hard one. It is so so I wonder then what are some of the key things that you've learned over the years of serving in Jinja? And maybe the second part of that question is what have Ugandans taught you? Um, we ask that question a lot of we're sitting at a table, we're sitting at the banquet table with Christ. And what is it that the Ugandans are bringing to the table mm. that we can learn so much from? So yeah. what are some of those things that you've learned? And I think, I mean, I think that hits the nail on the head, right? It's all about mutuality. What can I teach you and share with you? But also, more so, what can I receive from you and what can I learn from you? And that, I mean, in my years in Uganda, that has been totally turned on its head, right? Because I will be the first to confess I went over there thinking like, I have something to offer and I will help you and I know some stuff and it doesn't take long for that to be totally shattered. I mean, it was very, very quickly that I realized like, oh, no, I'm here to learn. These people are giving and offering me so much more than anything that I bring to the table. And I I think that that's really important and I would encourage anyone going into missions in that to keep in mind mutuality in relationship. I think, unfortunately and sadly, sometimes we do this thing. If we call ourselves missionaries or volunteers or we're sent by a mission organization, we um, maybe feel or have absorbed this message that we can only give and that that's our kind of duty to give and to help and to just remember like, you will give and you will receive, you will learn and you will teach, you will share. If you want the people that you're serving to be your friends, you have to come into it with an equal 
um, with with the, just this idea of mutual relationship, right? And mm-hmm. so um, I think one thing that has helped me is just mm-hmm. to be really vulnerable and be really almost needy in front of even the people that I'm there to help. It's not that I have it all together and you don't let me help you. It's that I don't have it all together and you don't have it all together and we both need Jesus in big and desperate ways. I um, This story keeps coming into my head that kind of pertains, so I'm going to tell it and you can cut it if it's not super helpful. But when I, I had just had my first baby, so we already had some adopted kids, and I had my first baby, and I was hosting this Bible study in my yard at my house several years ago. And, you know, the Bible study was definitely for people who were from this little slum community. I mean, think super, super low income Um and we were trying to teach them some vocational skills so that they could um, help their families. And you probably know about this because Tamara was like my partner in crime in that. I was at that Bible study several yeah. times. Never yeah. saw you there. <laughs> I feel like I wasn't gone that much. Um, but anyway, it met in my yard. And I remember when my son was born, we were mm-hmm. all meeting mm-hmm. in our yard and Probably one of the women who had struggled the most financially and also with sickness showed up and gave me as a baby gift this coil of wire. And she said, your laundry line has been broken for a year and you've been hanging your clothes all over the bushes. And I mean, I wept. I could cry telling you this story because... My laundry line did break and I, I could have fixed it. Like I could afford to fix it. I could have, but I was just, you know, it was just like one of those things that never made it up on the priority list. Go to the market and get a new coil of wire. And so for probably a year, we had been hanging our clothes just over the bushes and we had like a fence in the back. So we would hang them over the fence and they would dry fine there. But she had like taken the time to notice she had taken the time to notice what my need was mm-hmm. and to provide for that need. That that's that's what it needs to be about, right? Like that's what a real friendship looks like is I can step into your need and you can step into mine and mm-hmm. there was a pride in me that wanted to say like no, I can't receive this gift from you because I know what it cost you. And I know that what it would cost me isn't nearly as much, you know, but the humility to be able to receive from her, um, that picture comes to my mind so often when I think of like how I want to relate to the people in our programs and to the people in the communities where we serve. Like I always want it to be about relationship, not about I'm kind of the giver and you are the recipient. That that puts you on unequal ground, right? And we know, mm-hmm. like pastors say it all the time, the, the ground is equal in front of the cross. Like we are all on the same level here. Well, you hit upon all of the words that we continuously use mm-hmm. on this podcast, mutuality, humility, Uh, relationship or companionship, friendship. We've used all of those interchangeably. And it is a beautiful thing when the gift of reciprocity happens, when you are not seen as an outside person coming in, but you're seen rather as family. You're Mm -hmm. seen as somebody who is loved and adored. And there's the word in itself is seen. You are seen. And I think that that's one of our one of the things that Will and I talk about a lot is how can we simply see others. The biggest mm-hmm. longing of my life is to be seen, yeah. and how can I in turn see others? And and is it the Christ in me can see the Christ in you, and then that's where our hearts in relationship meets. Mm-hmm. So, a beautiful way of saying it, Katie. What a wonderful story! And gosh, it just makes me think about so many different things. But I've been in the mission field full full time for. 20 years. And I think if, you know, when I stand up in front of groups and talk about this 
and if I'm asked about, you know, what's meant, you know, what's been your biggest accomplishment or what are you the most proud of and all that kind of stuff, I, I know what people want the answer of that question to be. But if I'm really honest, like the day that uh, a young man from this community who was dropping me off at the airport used, as he was saying goodbye to me, referred to me using a word that I know is the word he uses with his friends in the neighborhood. We talked to someone uh, a week or two ago who watched out of the window of their home in the community where they were serving as a child from the community walked one of his little girls across the street, unprovoked, unsolicited, just took it upon himself to shepherd this little white girl across the street. And to me, those are one of the questions I've asked several times is like, what was your invitation into the community where you're serving? And you, you were invited by this family, this pastor's family to come and be a part of the community. But to me, that kind of gesture from from this woman, this mother to have recognized a need to me, that is a total validation of your being welcomed into the community. And that matters so much, yeah. just on so many different levels, it matters so much, especially if we're going to try and and break down this mm -hmm. paradigm of, you know, the three of us are heroes going to fix stuff for people they can't fix for themselves. But no, what we're trying to do yes. is just be at the table together. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. And, you know, I, to some people, I think it would seem like a pretty innocuous story, mm -hmm. but if you've been there, you know what that means to receive that kind of a gift from the community. Yeah. And you had asked me too, you had asked me what, you know, what I thought Ugandans bring to the table. So many things. But one thing that I've really, really appreciated since being back in the States for a little while is just Ugandans have immense, beautiful hospitality and are so willing to let anybody into their home, no matter what time it is, like no matter if they have something to feed you or don't, like if they don't, they will find you something, they will find something to feed you or, you know, they'll put on some tea or something small. But I just, I love, I love the way that Ugandans value relationship. And I feel like mm -hmm. I learned that. Mm -hmm from them. I, I, my, my deep, the deep value that I have for relationship and hospitality, I really believe I learned in Uganda and it was only really noticeable to me when we moved back to the U S mm -hmm. a little over a year ago. There's just a, I would say that Ugandans generally, and I, I don't love generalizations, but most Ugandans that I know value relationships over time. And so if taking a minute to have a conversation or to listen to someone or to even greet someone well and politely means that you're a couple minutes late, it doesn't matter. You mm -hmm. still take the time to see the person, listen to the person, make sure you say hello properly to them. Um, and I do feel like a lot of Americans get this wrong and we value time mm -hmm. over relationships. And so if my neighbor stops by, but I'm on my way to something, I'll say, oh, I'm running late. I got to go. Like, I'll see you later. Um, and probably my neighbor won't even be offended because we're so used to that, right? And we're all just kind of in a hurry and, and doing our things. But I mean, there's even a phrase in Luganda that basically means, you say, and it basically means... I see you and I don't have time right now to go through the formality of asking you, hi, how was your day? How's everyone at home? I'm going to keep going, but like, I acknowledge you. Oh. And that it's, it's like a phrase for that because yeah. you would really never do that. You really always are expected to stop and say, hi, how are you doing? How's everybody at home? How's the day? How was the morning? Um, there's like this whole greeting process, you know, and we're out here just like, okay, hey, bye. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe I'll wave at you. So I just, I think that um, relationship has like just such a greater value in my heart and life uh, because of what I learned from my Ugandan friends. 
Well, so many of those lessons are in the books that you have written. So your your debut was Kisses for Katie. Uh, then you wrote Daring to Hope. And now on March 28th, you have Safe All Along coming out. Yeah. You want to give us a yeah. sneak preview? Sure. Yeah. Super excited to have written this book. Um, God really placed it on my heart several years ago to um, just write a book about what it looks like to find his peace in the chaos of this world. We had had a really challenging season as a family, and I had really struggled with anxiety in a way that I never had before. And so, you know, very much had the head knowledge of like, okay, it's right here in scripture. Cast all our anxieties on him. He gives us peace that passes understanding. You know, like I can quote it to you. But my heart does not feel that way. So I began asking myself, like, how do I go from the knowledge of God's peace to the experience of God's peace and living that out in my day-to-day life? And what I didn't know was as I started writing this manuscript, COVID shut down the world. And then we had another big family thing. And then we unexpectedly moved from Uganda to the U.S. So it was just God is kind that he allowed me to learn it. He gave me this idea and then he like allowed me to learn it in a totally deeper way than I even imagined that I would. Um, And so I'm excited for the book to come out because it feels like just a deep work of my heart and it feels like um, it's definitely not written from the place of, I am now an expert on peace, read this book. It's definitely written from the place of like, I am deeply desiring to learn this alongside the rest of us, and um, God has been very gracious to teach me and walk me through it, so very excited. It sounds like you have the preacher's curse, because every time I preach, especially if it's on a topic like joy or gentleness or peace, Mm -hmm. then there are going to be plenty of opportunities for me to learn this lesson in my preparation of preaching it on a Sunday. So, Yeah, I think that's, I mean, my husband's a pastor as well, and I think that's just pretty much, pretty much how it goes. Like, oh, now it's everywhere. Right, right. I have to admit, uh, when your husband first came over to Uganda, I happened to be there either, I think it was right after he came for the first time, and Jeremy was serving as a, he was the vetter, wanted to make sure that this was, he was being big brother to make sure, so. Jeremy was always my vetter. So thankful. (laughs) So thankful for that. I'm thankful that we've had this time together on the Broken Banquet podcast. I know you're very busy promoting and doing so many things, plus your family and being a wife and a mother to so many. So we really appreciate the time that you've taken to sit and chat for a while and tell us about the things that you've learned. And and for so many of the topics and principles that we've been talking about on the Broken Banquet that you've emphasized those as well. So listeners, we promise Mm -hmm. we didn't prompt her at all. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, and I can't wait to to get this out there for folks to to listen to. So thank you for, for being with us on The Broken Banquet. Everybody go to Amazon immediately, safe all along on March 28th. Bye, Will. Bye, Ashley. Bye, Will. Bye, Katie. Bye, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast.